Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning exactly what to eat for longevity, getting tips on how to be happier in our careers, or unlocking secrets for loving our bodies just the way they are. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, we're talking about something we all could probably be implementing more of into our lives, boundaries. The word gets thrown around a lot, but I think a lot of us struggle to identify when and where a boundary needs to be put up and how to actually go about having those tough conversations with our friends, our partners, our coworkers, our parents, and more, which is why I am so excited to welcome Melissa Urban to the podcast. You've probably heard of Melissa as the co-founder of Whole30. She's a six-time New York Times bestselling author, and her work has been featured by media outlets like People, The Wall Street Journal, The Today Show, and more. Her newest book, The Book of Boundaries, Set the Limits That Will Set You Free, features 130-plus scripts to help you set boundaries and comes out next week. She actually has a pre-order bonus on her website at melissau.com, so definitely check that out. In this episode, we talk about why setting boundaries is so important, how to know exactly what boundaries to set, exact scripts for setting boundaries in all types of life situations, including people commenting on your weight, friends pushing you to drink alcohol or party, a boss who keeps asking you to work all the time, or a friend who wants you to spend a ton of money on her bachelorette or wedding. We talk about how to overcome fear of confrontation, Melissa's top confidence tips, her take on quiet quitting, how to deal when you disagree with other people on what boundaries need to be set, how to show up to support other people's boundaries better, why it's so important to set boundaries with yourself, plus exactly how to do it, a science-backed secret to increasing willpower, the number one thing that people get wrong about setting boundaries, and so much more. Melissa and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, and I am so interested to hear what tips you plan to implement into your own life and what boundaries that you're setting. So definitely share and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she's at Melissa U. If something really resonates with you in this episode, and I have a feeling it will, please share with someone that you love so they can hear all of Melissa's amazing boundary-setting advice. I think this episode would be a really great conversation starter with a partner, a friend, a parent, a sibling, or really anyone that you want to have a chat with about boundaries but don't know quite where to begin. Sharing is also the best way to support the podcast, so thank you for continuing to share and grow healthier together and this wonderful community. I see you and you are so appreciated. Okay, are you ready to have your mind blown? Let's get right into it with Melissa Urban. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melissa. I am so excited to talk about your beautiful book. It feels like a left turn, but it also feels like the most natural thing in the world for you to be talking about. It really is more of a progression, I think, than a left turn. If you've been following what I've been doing through Whole30 since 2009, I've been helping people set boundaries for- Is it that long? 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how the boundary conversation started with you in your head, in your life. Well- The first boundary I personally ever set was 22 years ago when I was fresh out of recovery from my drug addiction for the second time and found myself at a party I shouldn't be at with people I didn't know doing God knows what in the bathroom and realizing that I could not be there. And I was there with a friend and in an act of complete desperation, I just blurted out what was to become the first boundary I would ever set, which is I can't be here. I need to go home. And 
through that experience, I realized how boundaries were really the key to expanding Mm. my recovery and therefore my life. And that kind of began my own personal process with the Whole30 in 2009. It's a 30-day elimination program. You say no a lot and people are uncomfortable, especially in social settings. So I was helping them say no to break room pizza and donuts and their mom's pasta and the glass of wine at happy hour. And I think once people figured out I was really good at helping them say no to that, they started coming to me with their toxic mother-in-law, their pushy coworker, their nosy neighbor. And so that's sort of the extension of the conversation. Do you think that some people are born with the ability to say no better than other people? Like, do you think this is an innate skill you have? Sometimes I think it is. I don't know if you know Enneagram types yeah. or your Gretchen Rubin mine. I don't know mine. I'm a hard eight, which okay. is the challenger type, which means by nature, I'm not afraid of confrontation. I've never been known as what you might think of as a people pleaser. It's like not in my okay, nature. So I'm not that one. So I think for some people, it does come easier to others. Other people are more obligers if you follow the Gretchen Rubin archetype or people pleasers. But boundaries are not a skill that we are taught. They're not taught to us in school. They're not taught to us in college, not as part of the workplace. And if they weren't modeled for us through our families, which very often they aren't, then it's one of those skills you have to pick up as you go. And it tends to be a moment of crisis Mm. where you realize, whoa, I am seriously lacking in this information. And then you have to go out and seek it. Do you think that anybody can learn to set great boundaries? Absolutely. 100%. You can learn. And I call it a practice, just like anything else. It's a skill for sure, but you will always practice. I'm not great at it the first time around, and I still occasionally find it uncomfortable. But when you are armed with the right mindset and the right language, anybody can learn how to set boundaries. So can you convince us first that it's worth it, and then we'll get into all of the practical tips and tools, and we'll learn to set better boundaries. But what are the advantages of becoming an amazing boundary center? When you think about how much time and energy and energetic capacity. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's so much of your physical space. We are giving up because it is uncomfortable to advocate for ourselves. And I hear this a lot from women, and I hear it especially from moms. When you start a boundary practice, you realize that you don't have to walk around in your relationships and in your day feeling resentful, angry, Mm. anxious, frustrated, dreading certain interactions, avoiding certain people. There's so much energetic expenditure that goes along with the avoidance of the thing. And yes, setting the boundary can be uncomfortable, but it's like a momentary discomfort and leads to actual change that brings real freedom into your life. Relationships are better. You feel more trusting, more respectful. You reclaim your energy and your time and your capacity and your money and your physical space and you reaffirm that you are worthy of having needs and having those needs be respected, it's really a foundational skill that flows into any like wellness practice, habit practice, health practice you want to start. You told us about the party. What boundaries are you setting right now in your life that you feel like are making the biggest difference? Mostly around saying no to work things. Okay. So I'm in a busy season right now. We're getting ready for the book launch. I have a lot of podcast invitations and opportunities to travel. And do you want to guest write for this piece? And I know that if I don't manage my energetic expenditure well, I'm going to head into book tour already depleted. So I'm becoming very stringent about what I say yes and what I say no to. And I'm never saying yes automatically. I am always pausing to ask myself, do I have capacity for this? Does it serve me? Will I be able to recover effectively from this? So that's one area right now that I'm really focused on. So I find those questions really interesting because I think it can be more difficult than we 
talk about to know what boundaries we need to set. So how can we start to identify those areas and maybe what are those questions we should ask ourselves in the different areas of our life to know if we need a boundary? I think most people have a general sense that something about this relationship, this conversation, or this environment doesn't make me feel good. And it's just this general sense of unease. And when you probe a little bit more, you can then identify exactly what it is. So if you feel a sense of dread or anxiety, that is the very first alarm bell that a boundary is needed around a certain conversation topic or with a person. It's the coworker that you see passing by your desk and you kind of hide so you don't have to have a run-in with them or the you know, neighbor that you just close the garage door quickly because you don't want to chat with them. If you feel like you can't show up as your full self with somebody in a particular relationship, if you don't know where you stand with them, if you leave interactions just feeling less good about yourself, or if you leave interactions and you're running through the stuff in your head of what you could have said, what you could have done, how you should have handled that, those are all giant alarm bells that a boundary is needed. Let's say you feel that way. You've identified the feeling. How do you know what the specific boundary that needs to be set is? So I have a worksheet that goes along with the book that anybody who pre-orders or orders early can download. But essentially, if you start with this big, I don't like engaging with my in-laws. Okay, like why? What about it specifically? Maybe it's that they drop by without calling and that makes you feel really invaded and and your personal space is invaded. Maybe it's because every time you see them, it's because your mother-in-law comments on your body or your appearance and you just wish that she wouldn't. And if that were the thing that you took away, all of a sudden you would have a lot more freedom in the relationship. So it's really thinking through and getting very specific with what aspect of this interaction is making me feel that dread or anxiety And what kind of limit could I set or could I communicate effectively to help relieve that? We're going to get into a lot of the nuanced tips for how to approach different situations, but are there some general communication tips you can start us off with that we can use in any situation as we start to brave this conversation? One of the things that I think is really impactful, and I just mentioned it, is if you just employed a pause before you said yes or no to anything anything, just a pause. Maybe that pause is one minute while you consider. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's a day. Thank you so much for thinking of me for this project. Let me check my calendar and my schedule. I'll get back to you. Or thank you so much for inviting us on this vacation. It does sound fun. Let me go home and think about it for the weekend. Or, hey, that party this weekend sounds great. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make it. Let me get back to you later. Like, you know, not an unreasonable amount of time, but if we just employed that pause, it would buy us the space and time. I also really like the idea of just people embracing the idea that no thank you is a perfectly polite response. You do not need to over-explain, justify, provide a reason. You can just say no thank you. And very often in these situations, that's all you need. It makes me so nervous. I picture saying no thank you and them just staring at me and waiting for more. And then I'm like, okay, I'll give you more. So they might, right? Very often, especially as women, we've been conditioned to believe that we have to have a good reason for basically anything we want. And very often, the other person has to agree with or approve our reason before we can have it. And I think it's incredibly empowering just to say no thank you. And if Somebody just sits there waiting for you to say more, for you to just sit there too and be comfortable with that. Oh my God. And for, I know. And if people say why, there's an easy follow-up, which is, I just don't want to. I'm just not feeling it. I'm not drinking right now. I'm not a donut person. I just don't want it. 
There's so many general things you can say that nobody can argue with that are perfectly reasonable to hold this boundary. And in the spirit of good communication, you might want to share more in an effort to deepen your connection and to be more vulnerable. The reason I've asked you not to comment on my body or weight is because the pandemic has done a number on my mental health. And I'll be honest, I find myself really fixated on how I look. And even if you mean it as a compliment, it gets me inside my own head. So I'm asking, can you help me with this? That's one thing. That's very different than setting a boundary and then feeling forced to explain it or justify it and force the other people, the other person to like agree with it. That's not necessary. Do you have any pragmatic tips though for when I'm sitting in that discomfort? If we're not an Enneagram 8 and we're just like, this is so awkward in that moment, yeah. what yeah. can we do? I mean, the alternative, Liz, is that you give in to make the other person comfortable and you sell yourself out. And then you've given yourself the message that you are not worth holding on to your need, that your needs are not worthy. And that's a really powerful message to internalize. When we think about what happens when we give in like this, we use words like we eat it, we swallow it, we shove it down. Mm. And like I really feel like somatically that energy stays in our body. So it is uncomfortable, but I think it's Glennon Doyle who says, disappoint everybody else before you're willing to disappoint yourself. And I do think it takes practice. Practice with people that you know are safe spaces to do this with. So when I say after this podcast, hey, do you want to go to lunch? No, thank you. I'm super tired. I'm going to go back to my hotel. Let me then affirm that for you and go, I totally get it. Super proud of you. Go back to your hotel. Have a good time. Practice that with people so that when you are met with resistance or pushback, you have that experience and that groove of like, I can say no, yeah. they can be disappointed, and that is okay. I'll tell you that I'm going to wait 24 hours to let you know Okay, go to lunch after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Got to take some time to think about That's this That's totally one. fair. So half of your book is basically these scripts that actually yeah. walk people through scenarios they might run into with boundary setting in their life. And I love that format because you can be like, okay, I got the ideas in theory, but in practice, it's so difficult. You can't go through all of them because there's obviously, do you know how many you have? 130. More That's than 130. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like you thought of every yeah. scenario. We tried to in every relationship and every script has the green, yellow, red framework for escalating boundary language. Yeah. Can you explain the green, yellow, red yeah. framework? It was really important for me to include scripts because like you, if the idea of saying no is uncomfortable, Finding the words is just really hard in the moment. Like, okay, I know that I need to set a boundary here. I'm already uncomfortable doing it. How do I say it? So I wanted to provide people with how you actually say it. But then my boundary philosophy is essentially like minimum effort, maximum effect. How gentle and kind can you go in and set this boundary and still have it be respected? Because that is the best case scenario. I'm not going to walk in and like kick your doors open with my boundary, if I could just say a gentle no thank you. So green language is sort of the threat is minimal. You're going in nice and gently. If it needs to escalate for whatever reason, they're giving you pushback or they forget a number of times, you can escalate to yellow. And then the red boundary is essentially your overstep of my limit is such a threat to my safety or health or our relationship that I am now enacting the consequence. This is the action I'm going to take to keep myself safe and healthy. If you have dry skin, this is going to be your holy grail. I've loved, loved, loved the Osea Andaria Algae Body Butter for years. 
It is so rich and creamy and lush, but it sinks right into your skin and it makes your entire body feel moisturized and not greasy at all. I actually do not understand how it's so not greasy and yet so, so hydrating. As fall approaches, I'm leaning into mini spa energy, these micro-relaxing moments you can insert throughout your day. Because peppering your day with tiny bits of calm can have huge impacts on overall cortisol levels, on your anxiety, even how you sleep at night, and the smell of the body butter. Holy cow, it is pure spa energy. You get that like laying on the massage table, melting energy. It is phenomenal. I've gone through at least four tubs of this personally, and that is saying something because it lasts a long ass time. A little bit goes a very long way. I also always keep extras on hand to give out as gifts. It uses ingredients that you would normally see in face care products like seaweed, ceramides, glycerin, which I am obsessed with for hydration and think is so underrated, amino acids, even a skin identical moisture complex. Also, here is a little tip. If you want to amp up its hydrating power even more, put it on damp skin right after the shower to really lock in all of that moisture and hydration. Like all Osea products, it's formulated with real seaweed to take advantage of its nutrient-rich benefits like deep moisturization. It's also vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Osea has actually been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And I personally absolutely love how everything is ethically tested and sourced. For clean body care that gives you skincare-level results, you've got to try Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code LizMoody at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order, and orders over $60 get free shipping. While you're there, get the body butter, of course, but I'm also obsessed with the Vegas Nerve Oil and Pillow Mist, both of which help so much with my anxiety. I love rubbing the oil on my hands and inhaling deeply before I meditate to make it feel more intentional and calming and grounding. You are going to want it all. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, promo code Liz Moody. I have a product that is going to change your life. I've recommended this to so many people and they're all floored. It's basically a perfect dupe for the viral Laneige lip mask, but a million times better and with ingredients that are clinically proven to help dry lips and actually good for you, which is important because you're essentially eating anything that goes on your lips. It is the Osmia Lip Repair Overnight Mask and it feels like heaven. And you're going to want one for yourself and also to stock up and give them as gifts because they are the best present. They help my dry lips when nothing else works and I will never be without mine now. And while you're on the Osmia site, you are going to want to stock up on the bar soaps. This is the original product that Dr. Sarah Villafranco, the founder, created, and they have converted me to bar soaps after years of not being able to take the plunge. They're cured longer, so they last way longer than any other bar soap I have ever found, which is amazing for travel. I have been traveling so much recently, and I've had literally the same bar of soap, and they smell amazing, and they do not dry out your skin. Go with the scent that speaks to your soul, but coffee mint is my personal favorite. 
Finally, if you remember Sarah's pod episode, she has a whole line of products that help with skin conditions like perioral dermatitis, which is when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne, even when nothing else works. She's famous for this. So start with the black clay facial soap and the purely simple face cream if you are like, oh yes, that is me. If you would like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. So can I give you a scenario and maybe you could give me a green, yellow, red for it? Okay, so you mentioned this already, but I think it's a common one family or people that you don't want commenting on your weight. Yes. It's a very, very common one. And I think especially in older generations where you look thin or you look like you've lost weight is the ultimate compliment. So I think a green boundary would simply be to say, I appreciate that. I'd rather not talk about my body, thanks. Tell me about that sweater though. That looks fantastic on you. Changing the subject is such an effective tactic when you set a boundary because it gives the other person a little bit of an out if they feel uncomfortable for overstepping your limit. And it indicates that this is really not a subject of conversation. So you can just say something simple like, please don't comment on my body or I'd really rather not talk about my weight. That's not a subject I'd like to talk about. Simple. Okay. And then a yellow. So if they continue, then you would say, I've asked you not to comment on my body, even if you mean it as a compliment. I really need you to respect that. So now it's a little more firm, right? I'm restating the boundary. I'm sort of giving it a little bit of context and I'm saying, I need you to respect that. And the unsaid consequence is, or I'm going to remove myself from the conversation. Mm. And the red boundary in that situation would be to say, this is not a conversation I want to be a part of. And you leave the table. You find another conversation partner, you leave the room. Or maybe if it's a relationship like your mom It might be, mom, I'm not going to be able to spend time with you over food if you can't respect this limit that I'm trying to set with you. You may need to find other ways to engage with this person in a way that does not involve your mental health being harmed by their overstep of your limit. Okay, let's try another one. What about Mm. friends who are pushing you to drink or party or socialize in a way that you don't want to? These kind of make me really mad because I feel like alcohol is sort of the only thing we have to justify. Nobody's like, why don't you smoke cigarettes? It's so weird. Like, just have one. So again, my go-to is just no thank you. No thanks. I'll have a water thanks. I'm good with water thanks. Not drinking tonight. The second time someone pushes, you can say, again, I'm good thanks. And I say it a little more slowly and a little more deliberate, and I'm holding some eye contact to send the message, I'm okay. And then I would turn and perfectly polite. I'm not being rude, but I'm being a little more direct. And the third time, I might say something like, you've asked me three times and I've said no. I think it's pretty clear and I'd like you not to ask again. And or I would simply remove myself from the conversation or from the environment. Maybe your red boundary is, I'm in recovery and you should not press people to drink like that. It's not appropriate or polite. Whatever that language looks like for you. But at that point, you are saying to the person, I am now going to take the steps that I need to keep myself safe from your peer pressure. So I think that the first example was really about confronting our fear of confrontation. 
The interesting thing about the alcohol partying example is that I think the fear that we have to get over there is like a fear of judgment. And I'm curious if you have any advice for getting over the fear that other people will think you're a loser. Okay. So it goes both ways. You are afraid maybe that other people are going to think or they overtly say, you're no fun. In which case I'm like, okay. But we want to be fun, you know? But like, I am fun. That's the ridiculous thing. So you're, thing. you're confident enough. You're just like, I know I'm fun. I don't need you to say I'm fun. I think that reflection always says volumes about that person and says nothing about me. Their assumption that I am not fun if I am not drinking is really just me holding up a mirror and them kind of examining their own behaviors around alcohol. And it speaks volumes as to what they're thinking, but it doesn't say anything about me. So that's kind of an immature response, like you're no fun. And sometimes I would say something like, okay, watch me, or maybe you're not as fun as you think, or whatever that looks like, depending on the relationship. But what can also happen when you say no, and depending on how you say no, is the other person can then feel judged. So I don't like to say something like, no, I'm working on my health right now, or no, drinking's not very healthy. I'm trying not to do anything that maybe assumes judgment, Because I don't want to get into a defensive kind of conversation. That's why a simple no thank you is so beautiful. You can't argue with the idea that I just don't want to drink right now. And it's really simple and really easy. And if they still assume judgment from that, that's not my problem or responsibility. This is a little bit of a tangent, but you are so self-actualized and so confident and I'm curious if you have any confidence tips that we could steal from you so in that moment we can feel like we know ourselves, we trust ourselves, we don't need the affirmation from other people. I mean, I've done so much therapy. Like if I am confident is because I've been in therapy basically my whole life. I've done exercises all throughout therapy where I decide how I feel about things that I am or things that I've done. So when someone would say to me, you're not that fun, I can go back to my own internal inventory and go, do I think I'm fun? How fun am I? In what ways am I fun? Am I just not fun in the way that this person thinks is fun? And I know how I feel about whether or not I'm fun. So whatever you say kind of doesn't matter. You can think I'm the funnest person in the world and I'm like, that's cool. I love that that's how you're experiencing me. Or you can say you're no fun at all and I can go, that's not true. But that's just how you're choosing to see it now, and that's okay. Well, and I think it's an interesting thing to internalize that the other person's judgment actually doesn't really matter. Like, I think it hurts the most when it scratches your own deep-seated fear that you're not fun. Yes. But that's not going to change if other people tell you you're fun till the end of time. It's not because it's two sides of the same coin. If I am uplifted and buoyed by the fact that you think I'm fun when the next person thinks I'm not fun, now I'm dragged down. You cannot have one without the other. So you're either living and dying via external validation or you decide how you feel about it yourself. Which one of those would you recommend? The second one, <laughs> as painful as it is, because I've done the last one in my yeah, earliest Yeah, and it's days. exhausting. I've done it too. Yes. And it's such a roller coaster to have yeah. your mood and your self-image and your self-worth just go up and down based on yes. who you interact with. I found myself image crafting and wanting to show only this side of me. And I had this, I could only be perfect now because I needed other people to think X, Y, Z. And yeah, it's really tiring. Is there any exercise or anything you did to get rid of that? I want to be perfect. I want to appear a certain way to other people. I'm a huge fan of Byron Katie. She Mm. wrote the book Loving What Is and her practice of the work of questioning stressful thoughts and sort of differentiating your story about what happened from what actually happened has been really game-changing for me. That's one practice when implemented 
that allowed me to see a lot of these situations very differently and stop telling myself stories about what it meant. When I walked in, you didn't say hi to me. She's mad at me. I invited myself on her podcast. She doesn't really want me to be here. Instead of just, Liz didn't say hi. And now there's just no stress associated with it. And whatever that reason is, it's not my business. Did I not say hi to you? you no, you did. I'm like flashing back and I'm like, what? <laughs> no, you did. But we yeah. have these little things that happen and we tell ourselves stories about what it means, but we only tell the worst stories. We never say, Liz didn't say hi because she is so excited for this podcast with me that she can't contain herself. We never tell ourselves yeah. those stories. It's so is the practice to try to tell yourself the better story or to stop trying to tell yourself a story It's recognizing that there is no story. What okay. The stress is coming from the story. Okay. And it's just what is. Because if I walked in and said, Liz did not say hi to me, that statement, as flat as it is, means absolutely nothing. And it's only when I tell my story about what it is that I get stressed. Mm-hmm. So that practice has been really, really helpful. Okay. Back to boundary scenarios. What about a boundary scenario that might have a real life consequence? So I'm thinking about like you have a boss who keeps emailing you after hours or wants you to do work on vacation and you want to set a boundary with them, but you don't want to get fired. Yep. Yep. I mean, every potential boundary that you set can have a real life consequence in that if you are establishing a limit to keep yourself safe and healthy and the other person refuses or is unable to respect that limit, there needs to be a consequence. You have determined that this behavior is unhealthy or unsafe for you or bad for your relationship to a certain degree. And then you have to ask yourself, what are the lengths that I'm willing to go to enforce the limit and keep myself safe and healthy? At work, it's hard because sometimes your work environment is so toxic and so energetically draining and so taking advantage of you, that the only way to remove yourself from the situation is to get a transfer, ask for a new boss, or quit your job. And that's not practical for a lot of people. So there aren't a lot of super easy answers, but I do believe that you should be able to advocate for a safe and healthy and respectful work environment. And that there are some tactics that you can do in the office, like talk to your coworkers, present a united front, look at all of your human resources documentation to know what the company process and procedures are, find the diamond in the rough, the one boss who's not answering calls on vacation and say, like, teach me your ways. There are definitely things that you can do to advocate for yourself in the office because chances are if you're feeling it, other people are feeling it too. And maybe you can become the change maker that kind of helps rally others. So you think taking like a there's power in numbers approach to setting a boundary makes sense in that situation? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. If every single person in the office is saying, hey, you keep calling me while I'm out sick and the company policy says that when we're out sick, we need to be able to rest and recover. That is very powerful. So being able to lean on HR policies, talking to your coworkers and Finding compromises when you can. Of course, your boundary needs to be flexible. So please don't call me after hours. But if your office building is on fire, your boss should probably call you and let you know, right? So demonstrating flexibility, I think, is really important there too. But we're all talking about quiet quitting right now and this idea of like just going in and doing our jobs, which is not really quitting. It's just about setting healthy boundaries. What do you think about quitting? I think it's a healthy boundary practice. It's this idea of a fair exchange of labor for value. And I think what people are missing in this conversation is that if you have a healthy office culture that is respectful of boundaries, respectful of personal time, 
work time, personal space, your ethics and morals that recognizes employees' contributions and who goes above and beyond and creates this culture of transparency and leadership and teamwork, not family. If you have that culture, I'm going to be happy to stay a little bit late, a couple nights if you really need me on the project. Or if you need to text me on a Saturday to ask me a question, I'm going to be happy to respond because that isn't expected and it is always appreciated. That's kind of the rollback of quiet quitting, which is your employees wouldn't have to do that if you created a culture of respect and value in the first place. Yeah. And I think the problem with quiet quitting is it just by its definition implies that you can't have these conversations, which I think is a frustrating thing both for the employer because I think a lot of employers are like, well, if they said something to me, we would be able to change things. But then also for the person experiencing not feeling appreciated, feeling overworked, to have to sit and stew in those feelings would feel awful. Yes. I run a company. I am in a position of power in which I know it's hard to come to me and say, this thing is not working for me or you are not taking good care of me in this scenario. So I think it's really important for people in management roles to both model the healthy boundaries that they want the workplace to have. So if I'm saying we value work-life balance and my employees see me sending emails at 11 p.m. on a Friday night, that's not walking the walk. So I think that's really important. And then creating a safe space to proactively have these conversations where you're not only like expecting them to come to you, but you're seeking them out, touching base. How are things going? How was your vacation? Did you find that you were able to actually unplug? Mm. Well, you couldn't. Let's talk about what happened and what we could do differently next time. And then modeling that transparently for the rest of the company, I think is really important. I love that. In my company, which is not as robust as your company, (laughs) I have a list where I just keep a note basically after hours. Because I feel like a lot of people will send off the email because they're just like, I don't want to forget about this later. So I just have a list and then she can consult that list the next morning and see everything I thought about. Sometimes it's like a strategy thing. If you have a boss who's just not great with technology, show them how to schedule an email. Mm. You can write that whole email out and you can schedule it to send at 9.03 tomorrow morning and go. Or you can draft the message in Slack and just leave it in the morning when you get in, you push send. There are so many things that you can use technology for to help set and hold boundaries. And sometimes it's just a discussion around that. Is that part of the boundary conversation, the idea of strategizing with the other person to find a solution that works for both of you? I think very often it is. Sometimes the other person's behavior is simply not okay for you. And even if they want to keep telling you how good you look with your weight loss, and it's like, I understand that that's important to you, but that behavior is so harmful for me that I'm going to need you to compliment me a different way. I'll give the example of the mother and the in-laws who drop by without calling. That's very common. They just feel like they can come in at any time. Maybe it's a conversation you have with your spouse where he's like, I don't mind if they just drop by. They're really easy. I like visiting with them. And I'm like, that's really disruptive to my day. So guess what? They can come by without calling. But if I'm busy, I don't have to entertain them. They're on you. And if you're not home then I might not answer the door if I don't have capacity. Maybe that's the compromise you need to have. I definitely think conversations are really important, expectation setting and shared expectations and compromises where you can make the relationship better. But you have to remember that the boundary is always about what you are willing to do to keep yourself safe and healthy. And sometimes that requires a change to the relationship. 
I was going to ask what you do in a situation where it involves you and another person setting the boundary, but you disagree on the boundary that needs to be set. Are there other like examples you can speak to? I mean, it happens very often in romantic partnerships around family, especially where your spouse or romantic partner is like, well, that's just how they are. They're not going to change. And you're kind of the new person coming into the relationship saying like, no, 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 that is how they have conditioned you to do what they want. You always have to be on the same page if you're trying to set a boundary as a couple or as a family. It's not going to work if one of you agrees and one of you doesn't. So how do you get there? So sometimes there's a compromise to be had, like the one I just shared with the mother-in-law. I have this number system that I've been using for a really long time. So you and I disagree on whether the parents can drop over. So you say to me, how important is it to you that they call before they come over? And I think about it, and in my integrity, I say, I got to tell you, it's an eight. I find it so incredibly disruptive when they just pop in and expect us to drop everything. Now, I would say to you, how important is it to you that your mom be able to come over whenever she wants? And you'd go, oh, it's like a four. I kind of don't care either way. Well, now all of a sudden, we have a rubric for this is really important to me and not as important to you. Mom's got to call before she comes over. So I think that's another really effective way. And if they're both eights? If they're both eights, maybe you talk to a therapist. I say the word therapy a lot in this book because there are some issues that a boundary isn't going to solve. Yeah. And that could be one of them, you know, if it's equally important to both of you. But if it is, then it's like, oh, okay, well, why is it an eight to you? Why is it an eight to me? Well, what if we just have her call and give us at least 10 minutes notice? Would that work? Yeah, I think that would be reasonable. 10 minutes is good. That gives me a moment to regroup. I think there are things that you can do to approach it as a team. What about a boundary where the consequence feels like losing a relationship? I'm thinking about all the people who are like, I can't afford to spend this much money on a wedding or a bachelorette or a birthday trip, but this relationship is so important to me and I don't want to demonstrate that it's not. The kind of basic tenet of my boundary practice comes from Brene Brown. She wrote the phrase clear is kind in her book, Dare to Lead. And she was talking about it in a corporate setting, but gave me permission to adopt it to a boundary setting. In this situation, if my friend is getting married and wants me to be a bridesmaid and there's an expensive gown and a trip for the bachelorette and a trip for the shower and I legitimately don't have the time, energy, or capacity, the kindest thing you can do is talk about that clearly well ahead of time. I would love to be your bridesmaid. It means so much to me that you asked. And also, I want you to have the wedding that you want. I want you to have it exactly the way you want it. So here is what I can do given my financial limitations or time limitations or energetic capacity because I have a chronic illness, whatever. Here's what I can do. I want you to think about it and let me know, would you still like me as your bridesmaid in that capacity or would you rather have someone else serve? And regardless of your answer, I'm going to be perfectly happy. Now we have this wonderful relationship where we're communicating openly and honestly. We're able to show up exactly as we are able And whatever decision you come to is a good one. Okay. I'm going to be the bride for a second. But I know you take an Uber every single week. Or (laughs) I've seen you out at the bar doing a $100 tab. You can't just save a little bit better so you can come to my bachelorette party. I know. I know it's challenging to understand or try to observe people's behavior and kind of see under the hood of what's happening. But I am telling you in my integrity, this is not an expense that I can commit to at this time. And maybe I'll share more, right? Just me behind the scenes. Maybe I'll tell you about a medical bill or a credit card bill I'm trying to pay off or the fact that I know that my income is going down because I'm not getting as many clients. Maybe I won't because maybe it's not your business. But the point is I need you to understand it is not personal. 
but I am telling you that I will not be able to show up for you the way that you deserve. And I want you to tell me either that's okay, it's more important to have you in the wedding and I can give up those other things, or it's really important for me to have the wedding that I want and I'm going to ask this other person and I will handle that so gracefully. And I will be so grateful to you because we were able to have that conversation. This is a little weird, but what if the why is actually a little hurtful? So you're like, I actually don't like you more than I like my Ubers. I don't have a good reason for this, but it's not something that I really want I to mean, do. If you just don't want to be in the wedding because yeah. you don't like the person enough, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, I am honored that you would think of me and I really appreciate it, but I'm not going to be able to be a bridesmaid. And that's it. And if they say why, you can just say, again, I don't think I'll be able to show up for you the way that you deserve. Or I don't have capacity to. I wouldn't. I don't like you enough to be your bridesmaid. (laughs) Doesn't feel very kind. We have this tendency to say something like, you should have someone closer to you. We want to convince them. We do. Except that now that becomes not about me. That becomes me telling you what you should want. And then you can go, but I don't want them. I want you. So you really have to keep it about yourself. Mm. This is not a season in which I can commit to that. On the flip side, can you share some ways that we can show up better to support our friends' boundaries? Yeah. So the good thing about a boundary practice is that once you become more comfortable holding and setting them yourself, you also become more comfortable recognizing and receiving gracefully someone else's boundaries. And you never really know. When someone sets a limit with you, whether it's coming from a really healthy place or whether it's a controlling or manipulative tactic, because it can sound exactly the same, but that's not your business or your responsibility. And I like to give my friends the benefit of the doubt. Can you explain kind of what you mean by that? Yes. What might be the meaning behind it? We are very much in a couple in this podcast right now. You come home (laughs) from work and you say, I had the worst day. I just need to vent. And I say, can I please have an hour before you start to vent, right? That could be coming from a healthy place of, I also had an overwhelming day and I am not going to be able to show up and be supportive for you unless I get just a hot second of downtime. I'm going to go take a shower. When I come back, I will come back energetically prepared to hold this for you. Or it could be, why is Liz always talking about herself and never asks me about my day? No. I can't talk right now. I need an hour. It sounds exactly the same. And you kind of don't know where it's coming from. But I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to assume that what they are setting is a healthy boundary. I like to respect it, right? So if I say I need an hour, you would say, absolutely, I understand. I really need to talk to someone right now. So I'm going to call my sister. You take your hour. I am now taking care of my own needs. I'm responsible for my own needs. You go take your shower. In an hour, let's come back together and I'll ask you again if you can hear me talk about my day and hopefully I won't be quite so amped up about it. If you start to observe a pattern of behavior where every time you set a boundary, they set a boundary in response or they're never accessible to have you talk about your feelings, they always need time or have no energetic capacity, that's where I would start to pay attention and say like, is this really a healthy boundary or is this just a dysfunctional communication pattern? Are we always fully responsible for our own needs or is part of the expectation of relationships that people are going to be there for us even when they don't want to. Like I have really extreme anxiety and Zach, my partner, often ends up 
showing up for me. I think even when he doesn't have capacity, when he's tired, when he's burnt out because he loves me and he wants to take care of my anxiety. Or I have friends where they've been going through a hard time for a really, really, really long time. And I often don't know if I can kind of keep showing up in that way or it wouldn't be my choice. Like it wouldn't be my preference. But I'm like, is that part of what being a good friend is? Is that part of what being a partner is? To some degree, yes. And also, if Zach's own energetic capacity and mental health were suffering because of the way he was constantly showing up for you, that's not a healthy dynamic either. So again, it kind of goes to the context, which is if you're in the middle of a serious anxiety, I'm going to drop whatever I'm going to do and I'm going to be there for you. But if I'm your only person, if you don't seek any other form of support, if you don't have any self-care practices to help you manage your anxiety, if you are not actively pursuing some form of you know treatment for your anxiety, whether that looks like meditation or therapy or self, whatever that looks like. If I'm the only thing you know how to do to manage that, that's going to be very quickly depleting and overwhelming. And that's a scenario where I feel like, okay, now I'm going to set a boundary because I can't be that for you all the time. And is it our place in that scenario as the friend, as the partner to say, I don't feel like you're taking care of yourself? Like, have you tried therapy? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Or are those suggestions a boundary issue unto themselves? I know. It kind of depends, right? So if the person is constantly dumping, never, ever asking for advice, just expecting you to like hold their stuff and carry it around, that's kind of a situation where I would absolutely set a boundary. Like, hey, I've been listening to you talk about this, but it's really hard for me just to absorb it and not see any changes and not see you doing anything about it. Would you like some advice? Would you like me to help you find someone else to talk to? I heard Lori Gottlieb say, I wish I could be your therapist, but I can only be your friend. And I'm like, that's so genius. I love that. A lot of times in these situations, they are talking and they are open to advice and you're giving advice. And then if they're just not doing it, if you've had the same conversation three times and you know, you're like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried that? And they were like, oh, that's a good idea. I will try that. And then they just don't. Then the conversation can be, wait, wait, we just talked about this last week. Have you tried A, B, or C that we talked about? No. I think you should try those. And why don't you touch base with me after you do? So we do have to manage how much energy leakage we are allowing in our relationships. And I think it's very contextual. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra-HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. 
This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Liz Moody. There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits. I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. You are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked, Uh, but there's lots of ways that you can habit stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer that is bondcharge.com with promo code Liz Moody to get 15% off. And I think that codependency in a lot of ways has sort of become the norm in relationships without us even realizing it. Like our expectations for how people should show up for us and have gotten really elevated. And sometimes even in the case of us not 
being willing to show up for other people in that way, which is interesting. It is. It's hard. One of the things that I really appreciate about my husband is that when we got together the first time, because we were together for six months and then he broke up with me, and then we got back together after we had done some personal growth. But the first time we were together, I felt like he was really struggling to take responsibility for his own feelings. And the only thing he could do was like talk to me about them. And when we got back together the second time, the cool thing was that he would talk to me. And then in that conversation or after, I would hear him say, okay, now I'm going to talk to my mom. I'm going to call my therapist. I'm going to go journal. I'm going to go shoot some video. And I was like, oh, this is good. So I am a person for you, but I'm not the only thing. And I think that's really important in every relationship. Where did he learn those tools? I mean, through therapy, through us talking about it, I also like to model taking responsibility for my feelings. So when I am struggling with like a mental health issue, I'll talk to him and then say, and also I've got an appointment with my therapist already and I'm reading this book already and I'm going to go for a hike tomorrow by myself and I know that's going to make me feel better. I love the idea of vocalizing what you're doing and why you're doing it because I think that a lot of people listening are like, oh, I wish my partner would take that responsibility for their mental health in the same way that you're saying. And I love the idea of being like, not just I'm going to go for a walk, but I'm going to go for a walk so I can have some peace and think and take care of myself. Like I didn't realize how much my husband was using photography and videography for his mental health until Mm -hmm. he actually explained it to me. He'd say like, oh, I'm going to go out and shoot. And I'm like, okay, hobby, interest, whatever. But he was like, no, 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 no. I can get outside of my own brain and interact with the natural world through my lens. Like he actually described it to me. And now it's like, oh, okay. All right. That's different. That's so interesting too. I wonder if you could even ask your partner, what is the function? What is the role of this? Because you can be so much more supportive. Obviously, we want to support hobbies. But if something is crucial for your mental health and you're not even aware of that because they've never expressed that, then you can't support it in that way. Yes. I mean, when he first moved in with me, one of the conversations we had right off the bat is, there will be times where I will say to you, I'm going to go in our room and close the door and read the book for an hour. It is not about you. I am not mad at you. It will never be about you because if it was about you, you would know because I would tell you. It is because the only way I can recharge is if I am by myself. And when I feel energetically overloaded, sometimes it's like an instant thing. It's like a light switch and I'm done and I need to go do that. And so we just set that expectation so that when I do that now, he knows why. He knows it's healthy and not unhealthy. I'm not running away. I'm not hiding. I'm not punishing him. And that's really important. Are you an introvert? Wicked introvert. I need alone time like most people need to breathe, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so interesting with your whole career progression. What do you do to recharge when you're doing like all of this outward-facing activities? I get into bed in my hotel in all my clothes and (laughs) and I just chill for a minute, which I'm sure is like creeping some people out. But I mean, alone time, quiet time, downtime. I read a lot. I hike a ton. I'm outside a lot. I really love things like this. Like I'm getting so much energy from this. And as soon as we're done, I'm going to deflate. Same. And My favorite I'll... thing in the world. And then afterwards, I'm just like in a little ball. Yeah. Actually, I'm high for like a second afterwards. Yeah. And I'll like walk out and be like, woo, uh-huh. I want to like go out and party. And then 15 minutes later, I'll be like, no, no, I'm actually yes. ready for bed. It's like a toddler <laughs> after sugar. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. The other part of the book that I loved was the idea of setting boundaries with yourself. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah. I think people often think about boundaries in terms of setting them with other people and other relationships. And we've talked about that a lot. But you can and should set boundaries with yourself to protect your own health and wellness and mental health and time and energy. And the good news about setting boundaries with yourself is that you're the only person responsible for holding them. You don't have to rely on anyone else to agree or cooperate. 
But the bad thing about it is that who's going to know if you break your own boundary? It can feel like there are no consequences if you set a boundary with yourself. I set a boundary not too long ago that I wasn't going to look at social media in the hour before bed because I had become accustomed to scrolling through Twitter one last time just to check the news and there was a lot happening in the news and it was never good. And when you really think about it, if I did pick up the phone right before bed, no one's going to smack it out of my hand. Like nobody's going to come in. But there are some really serious consequences if I don't hold that boundary. So I talk about and frame self-boundaries in terms of what are the consequences to future you if you don't hold this boundary? And the consequences are that I'm going to be super fired up right before bed. I'm going to have a harder time falling asleep. I'm not going to sleep well. I'm probably going to oversleep. I might wake up late. I might not get to my workout the next morning. I'm going to be in a bad mood the next morning. There's a big spillover effect. But if I just put the phone down, all of a sudden I have so much freedom to have my end of the night look exactly like I want it to look. I can read a book. I can listen to a meditation. I can doze off peacefully without worrying about what people are arguing about on Twitter. So I think when you frame it like that, it can become a lot easier to see the benefits and the consequences of not holding self-boundaries. But often self-boundaries are the first step in establishing a new healthy habit. I can picture, I have the same scrolling before bed issue. I can picture future me. She's so happy. But right now me just literally doesn't have the willpower to set the phone down. So Whole30 land is very black or white on or off. It's an elimination program. It's like all or none for 30 days. And habit research actually shows that that black and white sort of language is easier for the brain to understand than moderation or some. So my strategy is what is like the shortest and sweetest thing that you could do to protect yourself, to protect future you from current you who just wants the instant gratification? If the phone's not in your bedroom charging, you can't just pick it up and look at it. That's the one thing I've gotten to work for me. So it's like if I can have that willpower moment when I'm heading to the bedroom to plug it in, then I'm good. But often I can talk myself out of that too. Okay. Then don't even keep a charger in your bedroom. It's not even in there because you're going to get into your bedroom. You're going to go out. You're going to have to get the charger from where you know you should plug it in. And very often, just that little pause is enough to go, oh, it's out here for a reason. There are so many interesting studies with like rats and talking about the ease of rewarding things. And it's very, very proven. The easier a rewarding behavior is, the more you're going to do it. And the more difficult you make it, the less you're going to do it. So make it really hard. So you don't think it's about increasing your willpower necessarily, but rather just making the situation as conducive to the outcome you want as possible. I mean, increasing your willpower is great. And I don't think it's about increasing it as much as it is reducing willpower demand throughout the day. Ooh, tell me about that. Well, every act from the moment we wake up requires willpower. Not hitting snooze, willpower. Not skipping flossing in the morning requires willpower. Sometimes just figuring out that, yes, I am going to exercise this morning becomes willpower induced. And so no wonder by the end of the night, we are like prowling through the pantry, scrolling on Twitter because we've got nothing left. And technology, habit research shows, is one of the fastest drainers of willpower, right? That dopamine hit is so fast and so instantaneous. So if we can remove some of those choices or willpower issues in the morning, laying out all your gym clothes in the morning so you don't have to make the decision, and then get to the end of the day or maybe the middle of the day when you're feeling like your willpower is strong and taking preventative action, it's like just an act of kindness, right? You know that you're going to be really tired at the end of the day. So you're going to do a little something now to make the end of the day a little bit easier for you. I love the idea of like taking a day to 
identify your willpower drains throughout Mm. the day, really kind of trying to be aware of it throughout the day, maybe Mm. even writing it down, being like, oh, this took me a second to like push myself to do and maybe looking for places you can get rid of those drains throughout the day. Anything that you can automate is fantastic, right? Anything that you can avoid that can make you avoid that willpower drain. So, you know, on the Whole30, we talk about like if it's not in the house, you're not going to eat it you're not going to get in your car in the middle of the night and drive to the whatever. That pause is as much as you need. I think my mom used to like freeze her credit card, right, in the freezer. This <laughs> and like, was like a block of ice. Yeah, this yeah. was like back in the day. So I think that could be really, really helpful too. If there are parts of the day where you feel like are especially willpower draining. And listen, boundaries can help you with that, right? If you know that you've got this coworker and you've got a morning meeting with them every Monday and it's just exhausting – can you set a boundary so that you don't have to use willpower not to like snap at this person in the middle of your meeting? So a boundary for that would look like, can we have the meeting a different time? It might be, can we have the meeting a different time? It might be, hey, I noticed that when we're in meetings, you take credit for my ideas a lot. And I got to tell you, it doesn't feel very good. Can we talk about how we can collaborate better? Or I noticed when we're in meetings, you interrupt me a lot. Next time that happens, I'm going to remind you that I was still talking and I'll let you know when you can jump in. Who knows why you're having this issue? But if you could just set a boundary to know that that meeting would go smoother, now you don't have to use willpower to get yourself into it, hold your tongue through the whole meeting and not seethe coming out of it. Okay. So is this going to be like a muscle where the more you work at, the easier it's going to get because you're going to get stronger and like maybe a positive reward cycle where you're going to start to reap the benefits? Because even you saying that, I'm like, ooh, could I do that? But like you're just like – do it once, do it again, yes. do it again, do it the easy people first. You promise that yes. that won't sound scary. I mean, it's inertia, right? Okay. It is an object in motion, stays in motion. And I think even more important than that is just this idea that as women, we have been told for such a long time that our needs don't matter. And like even that word needy has such a connotation to it, doesn't it? And I think every time you set a boundary, it's just a reminder that you have needs your needs matter. You can trust yourself, which is so important. And it just like reaffirms that you are worth sticking up for. So I do think that it makes you stronger and it makes you realize that these boundaries can be incredibly effective if you're you know, willing to brave a little bit of discomfort. If somebody was like, I would love to set some more self-boundaries, could you give us some more examples, like a little poo-poo platter to choose from? Yeah. I have examples in the book where I talk about a messy room. So here's how you know you need to set a self-boundary. What area of your life or like time in your day is the most stressful? And I will hear people say, every time I walk into my kid's playroom, it is red flags everywhere because it's absolutely a mess. And then it's like, okay, what kind of boundary can you set with yourself around keeping that room tidier. Maybe not your kid's playroom because maybe they're responsible for their own toys, but what can I set with myself? My whole house is a mess. Sure. You can use that. (laughs) Or what one room could I keep tidy? And that one room would have a huge impact on my mental health. For me, it's the kitchen. If my kitchen is clean, doesn't matter what the rest of the house looks like. I feel like I have my stuff together. So then it's like, okay, well, what boundaries can I set? Well, maybe it's every single night. I set a timer and I spend 10 minutes tidying one area. And that's all I commit to doing, but it's 10 minutes every single night. Or maybe it's I only watch Netflix shows if I'm tidying. Do you know Katie Milkman? No. She does the science of behavioral change. And one of her favorite strategies is tying a hard task with a favorite task. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. So you can do it around cleanliness around the house. I talk a lot about exercise and creating a morning routine. 
So one of the boundaries that I recommend everybody set with themselves is that you don't look at your phone in the morning until you're done with your morning routine. And that routine might be five minutes or it might be an hour, whatever serves you. But until then, you do not pick up your phone. You're not on email. You're not on Slack. You're not on social media. It's a huge game changer for feeling like you're starting the day proactive instead of reactive. So I check my aura first thing when I wake up, which probably isn't great. But I use my aura to be like, should I go back to sleep for another hour or two? But then once I'm on my phone, you know. Yeah, it happens. It's a harder thing than one would think. What do you have in your morning routine? Like what are your non-negotiables? I mean, the whole thing is pretty non-negotiable and I've been doing it for a really long time. But I do kind of mix and match pieces. Cold shower, that's like the first thing I do in the morning. And I'm not doing it every day anymore, but like pretty regularly. And then I immediately work out. So some you cold kind of shower movement. first, and mm-hmm. then you work out. Cold shower first. Yeah. Wow! So you can roll out of bed and just stick yourself in a cold shower. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're good. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's been profoundly transformational in terms of like my energy, my mm. mood. It's been amazing, and okay. it's like the best wake up. Oh, I'm sure. It's um, like having somebody dump ice on your face to get you out of bed. Basically, yes. And now I really love them. And then I do some kind of movement. So maybe it's a walk. Maybe it's a gym session. Maybe it's a yoga class. Maybe it's a hike. It might be 15 minutes in my garage. It might be like an hour and a half if I have the time. I do a little post-workout meditation every single time that I work out. And then I make my like breakfast and then my day starts. What's for breakfast usually? I've been really into... The Creatures of Habit is a high-protein oatmeal. It's vegan. It's plant-based. It uses 100% plant-based protein powder, but it's delicious. And it's like a complete meal in a pouch. I can get it done in three minutes flat. And I like the overnight oats method. So I'll do it the night before. Get done. It's super filling. My gut loves it. It's so good for my digestion. And then I'm hungry again for like a breakfast email, but that's kind of my first meal of the day lately. Love that. The other thing I really liked that you mentioned in the book was supporting people who maybe systems are more stacked against in enforcing their own boundaries. Can you speak to that? Oh, yeah. The author's note opens with an acknowledgement of all of my privilege because I'm just about as privileged as you can be without being a man, you know, white, straight, able-bodied, cisgender, within privilege. So when I set a boundary because of my proximity to whiteness and maleness, I can generally expect that my boundary will be at least somewhat respected. And if you are a woman of color or LGBTQ or trans or disabled, you don't have that same lived experience. So I do acknowledge that I cannot reflect or represent everyone's lived experience in the book. But I talk a lot about how to be a good ally or really bystander, an active bystander, if you are supporting someone else setting a boundary, whether it's in the workplace or out in the wild or how to intervene even. There's a wonderful organization called right2b.org, and they host these bystander intervention trainings online. And so I did a bystander intervention training in the workplace, which is like, what do you do and how do you act if you see someone being harassed or maligned in the workplace? And that was a really fantastic experience. What are a few takeaways from that? So the first thing is you really want to focus on the person who is being harmed and not the person who is doing the harming whether it's a stranger or someone you know, if you can distract, that often breaks the momentum. So, you know, they make suggestions like dropping your water bottle near them or saying like, hey, can you help me with directions? Or, hey, Jen, I needed to talk to you about that report and just kind of pulling them out of that situation. So that's one of the strategies. And they have this sort of whole like five point, but that essentially ends with if you feel like you can intervene in an effective way and you feel safe and the person feels safe enough, because sometimes our intervention can actually do more harm than good. So that's sort of the last strategy. But they offer a bunch of different ways that you can 
intervene in a way that's healthy and helpful for both parties. Well, and I think that's the fear sometimes is that in supporting somebody else in their boundary that you Mm -hmm. are not understanding something, you're making the situation worse. So I think it can be a tricky situation to navigate. You gave an example in the book, I think, where it's just kind of repeating. Like if somebody says something in a meeting, you can be like, oh, they said this. Did you hear them say this? Yes. And like little things like that. Yeah. I mean, there are a ton of microaggressions, especially in the workplace. So it's when Susie says one thing and then Jim says it and everybody thinks that, you know, Jim just said something fantastic. You can say, yeah, that's essentially what Susie was saying. Susie, do you want to continue with that idea? Or, I mean, when I worked in the insurance industry, I overheard so many just blatantly sexist comments. And it was hard for me to know what to say because these were often people who were my superiors. They were vice presidents and I was just an administrative assistant. But now my response is just something like, you can't say that. I actually used to say that to my boss all the time. I'd be like, you can't say that, right? I know you came from a different time. I know that maybe in your office culture that was acceptable. You can't say that now. And how did he respond? He responded very well. Really? Yeah, he responded very, very well. But sometimes you want to call it out in the moment to let other people know, like, this is not acceptable behavior. But you also have to do it in a way that doesn't make them double down. So I do offer some strategies in the book for sort of calling it out in the moment and then maybe revisiting it. Or if you're too stunned in the moment to call it out, that it's never too late to go back and say, hey, that joke you made about climbing the corporate ladder, that was not cool. You have a lot of women reporting to you that came off as really sexist. Next time that happens, I will not be quiet. Is there a way to deal with how exhausting it can be to just go around upholding all these boundaries all the time? Do I find it exhausting? No, I don't find it exhausting because the alternative is exhausting. If we're talking about comparison, me saying no to a work project and maybe even having to say no three times because they're being like really persistent is nowhere near as exhausting as me saying yes Mm -hmm. and then running myself into the ground to try to get it done. So it's actually not that exhausting. It is in preservation of my energy and my time. Doing the math that like the alternative is worse. It is. Are there any boundaries that you're struggling to uphold in your life right now? Work is always tough because sometimes I'm like, I definitely don't have the capacity for it, but it sounds so cool. I really want to do it or I really want to go. Or on a trip like this where I'm in LA for the entire week and I have friends in town, it can be hard to not get together with people that I really want to get together with, but I know energetically or because of my concussion that like it would really dig me into the ground. So I think that's always a bit of a struggle. And I definitely don't always get it right. Sometimes I say yes to things and go, okay, I should not have said yes to that. I said yes to a book tour event. And then, I mean, stressed about it for weeks. For weeks, I was like, I shouldn't have said yes. I don't know why I said yes to this. I don't have capacity for it. And finally, my sister was like, tell them you can't do it. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. So even I need help from time to time. Well, that's such an interesting (laughs) point too, though, is that even after you've made the choice, if Mm -hmm. you feel like it's the wrong choice, and sometimes it takes making the choice to even know, to get in touch with your gut enough to be like, oh, that was the wrong choice, but you can go back. I've had that experience so many times where I've been building something up in my head for months and then I'm like, oh, wait, just because I said yes doesn't mean I absolutely have to do this. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky 
there are some points where I'm like, you made this commitment and now it's too late. And if I canceled on you 10 minutes before I walked in the door. Well, podcast guests have done you know, it. I'm sure they have. But like, <laughs> I'm not happy about it. Unless it's an emergency, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. going to do that. So there is some point where I'm like, you got to take responsibility. Like this is the bed that you made and you are going to lie in and it. And it's situation specific, but I do think sometimes we feel locked in and trapped even right after the yes. Like sometimes yeah. I think we can be like, oh, that's the moment of clarity I actually needed. And maybe a more sophisticated person would play out the scenario in their head prior and be yeah. like, oh, this is what a yes would feel like. This is what a no would feel like. Perhaps I should go with a no. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't know. And sometimes you have to learn the hard way. But I have absolutely been like, yeah, I would love to. And then two seconds yeah. later, been like, actually, wait a minute. I would love to, but when I really think about it, I don't have capacity or I'll offer some sort of compromise, you know? Is there anything else that you feel like people get wrong when they're trying to set their boundaries that we could kind of clarify around right now? I think a common misconception is that boundaries are about telling other people what to do. And I get why that's a misconception because very often the first step in you setting a boundary is you sharing a request. And it's not the same as telling someone else what to do, although it can kind of sound like it. So if you smoke and I don't want you to smoke in my house and you come into my house, I would say, please don't smoke. Or maybe I don't allow smoking in my house. And it's not because I am trying to get you to not smoke. It's because I don't allow smoking in my house because it doesn't feel good or it doesn't smell good. But I think people mistake the idea of a request for, but you're telling me what to do. And all a request is is saying, I have this healthy limit. You probably didn't know it because I've never communicated it. I'm going to communicate it now. Are you willing? And if you say yes, we're all good. If you are not willing, the boundary itself is me saying, okay, this is the action I am going to take to keep myself safe and healthy, which is to say, if you refuse to put your cigarette out in my house, I will never invite you over again. That's the action I am going to take. So I think Wrapping your head around that can really help people understand that they're not about telling other people what to do. They're really coming from the self, which is very empowering. And on the flip side, would that be like a check we could do for ourselves if we are indeed telling somebody what to do? Would that be a sign like that's not actually setting a healthy boundary? That's trying to control somebody else's actions and behavior. Yeah. I mean, it can kind of sound the same depending on the motivation for where it's coming from. So please don't smoke might be like, I think smoking is gross and you shouldn't smoke for your health. Or it could be, I don't want to be around cigarette smoke. So yeah. I think walking through the process in your own mind. And honestly, the key is asking yourself, is this boundary going to make my relationship with this person better? Not are they going to be happier? Are they going to be more comfortable? But will I feel better in the relationship if they're able to meet this limit? If the answer is no or it doesn't matter, then maybe you're being controlling and manipulative. But if there's a legitimate reason, like, yes, if they would just call before they came over here are all of the ways in which our relationship would improve, then that's a pretty solid sign. We love to end on one homework assignment, something that mm -hmm. listeners can like turn the podcast off and go start doing immediately in the name of setting better boundaries okay. in this case. So can you give us one homework assignment? I'm going to say for the next maybe week, call it, you are not going to automatically say yes to anything. You are going to pause your acceptance of anything and everything. You decide how long to pause it for. But I want you to just practice the idea of checking in with yourself first. I don't want you to reply based on what you think the other person wants to hear. I want you to reply based on what do I want and need. 
maybe that want and need is it would feel really good to make this person happy and that would be restorative and fill my cup. Cool. But I don't want you to do something just because you want me to, even if I don't want to. So take that pause before you say yes or no. I love it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk all about your beautiful book at the beginning of the episode, but I would love to hear from you in your own words about everything in it. I think I'm just the most excited at hearing stories from people who have implemented my advice and said, you know, it's such a small thing, but I said no to that coworker who's always asking me to meet when she knows that I leave the office at five o'clock on Thursdays. And she's always asking me to meet at 4.30. And I finally said, please don't schedule meetings past 4 p.m. And it was like a light bulb went off. It was such a small thing, but it wasn't small. So I love hearing those stories. And I think people are going to find so many small, instantaneous, but like hugely impactful wins in this book. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I absolutely love this. Me too. Thanks, Liz. I absolutely loved this episode. I'm walking away feeling so inspired to figure out what boundaries I need in my life and then actually enforce them. Life is too short to walk around feeling horrible because we want to people please all the time, you know? I'm also definitely sending it to a few friends who I want to have boundary discussions with like, hey, fun podcast. I think you would like, you know, very casual. Also, is it just me or would this be a great one to put on a work Slack channel? Like, oh yeah, just uh, listen to this podcast. Think you all would love. Now um, stop sending me emails at midnight, eh? Okay, before we wrap up, if you haven't already, go join the Healthier Together Podcast Club Facebook group. The conversations keep getting better and it's quickly becoming one of my favorite places on the internet. It is so supportive and so information-packed. I will link the group in the show notes or you can just search Healthier Together Podcast Club on Facebook. You can also join the in-person clubs, which are now fully underway. So if you signed up, keep your eye out for an email soon. If you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including an episode all about finding hope when things feel hopeless, one on figuring out your life's purpose, and an Ask the Doctor blood sugar edition, which is highly requested. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Okay, I love you, and I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals. But I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. 
and the research around shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com.